Welcome to From Betrayal to Breakthrough. I'm Dr. Debbie Silber, and today's guest is Scott Mason from Scott. I am the son of a Midwestern civil servant and a factory worker. My up from nothing history and triumphs against adversity led to unlikely and unexpected success as an attorney, government official, entrepreneur, and community leader in one of the toughest cities on earth. My journey has flown in the face of those who believed I could not and should not succeed and it has given me a zealot's passion for ensuring that others never lose the internal fuel that will rocket them to ultimate levels of personal satisfaction and success. I'm now a motivational and keynote speaker, small business consultant, leadership mentor, with a publication of a book discussing resilience, the universal mind, and toxic masculinity, set for publication later this year. Today we're talking about an interesting topic, toxic masculinity. What's that? My next guest, Scott Mason, is going to tell you along with what happens to us physically, mentally, and emotionally when we shed the need for force and instead exchange it for authentic power. Here's Scott. Okay, everybody, we have my new friend, Scott Mason, with us. You know how you just meet those people and they're just so fun and you want to get to know them better? We had this great conversation and I could tell right then that we could have spoken for days and days and days. I purposely didn't ask him all the questions I wanted to know because I want to share them with you. So welcome, Scott. Thank you. It is so good to be here. And I felt exactly the same way. My jaw was hurting from all the talking we were doing. It was great. I know. It was fun. And what I love about, about it was you had, you mentioned something and I never heard of it, but I thought it was fascinating and it was called toxic masculinity. Mm. Let's start there. What the yeah. heck does that mean? Yeah. To me, it represents the characteristics that are associated with traditional versions of manhood, at least as defined by Western culture, but without the virtues. So strength, for instance, is a virtue associated with masculinity. Domination is the toxic version of it. Honor is the virtue that's traditionally associated with masculinity. Crushing another is the toxic, you know, other side of it. And so I feel like Toxic masculinity is when all of the qualities that men stereotypically, although not always, and some women exhibit as well, um, are stripped of their positive counterparts and are really, as we experience it in our culture right now, defined by belittling, like I said earlier, domination and abuse of others. Power for its own sake, not power, for instance, to further a social cause or to better the world. You know, it reminds me of an amazing book I read and it was by David R. Hawkins, Power Versus Force. Mm. And it was such, there was such a difference between the two. And, and it's, it's that uh, authentic power yeah. versus that sort of forced power. Yeah. What and what a difference those two and and also Gary Zukov I remember um, it wasn't Seed of the was it in Seed of the Soul he wrote so so many amazing books as well but he also talked about this authentic power this authentic strength that really wasn't by the ego it was really by the soul and that's true power and and it sounds like what you're talking about is more kind of ego power yes exactly. And I like the idea of um, 
power versus force. Because I think that one thing that we as men can do, which is almost always toxic, very limited circumstances it's not, attempt to navigate and manipulate and own our space in the world through means that in one way or another involve force, be it physical force, mental force, sheer force of will, as opposed to um, what some people might say is divine power, others might be uh, defined as power of love, or I define it as being a vessel of providence. But these are ways that are essentially not driven by ego, but are about something bigger, greater than all of us, or about bringing people up. Very, very different sorts of sorts of things. You know, it's when I was younger, I had a number of different executive positions in the government, which is, as you can imagine, a very power-oriented entity if it's not managed well. And I myself was the king of it. Force, that's how you show strength. That's what power is. It wasn't until I was much later, or much further along in my journey, and knocked, life had knocked me around a little bit, that I began to understand, no, actually force was a projection of what appeared to be power, but actually demonstrated a lack of that true power that you were just talking about a minute ago from within. That really, by embracing that, owning that, and saying that that's who I want to be as a man, as a human being, really, really make change. And by the way, change that's sustainable because people are engaged with it and they like it. And that's the difference, right? You know, and, I, and I'm thinking back to when, when I had acted like that as well. And I'm sure all of us have at some point. And you know what? Looking back and, and remembering how I felt, it didn't feel right. It didn't feel authentic. It didn't feel like that's who I really was. But somehow, it's almost like that's what I was supposed to do. Yeah. And how, how does this even start? I mean, are we, are we raised like that? Is this just what we see? What's been your experience? I do think that some of these things are ingrained within us at an early age by culture. I do think that parental um, norms or parental guidance that you get or don't get really plays into it. That being said, I strongly believe our culture didn't have to be the way that it was. Now, for whatever reason, and we both know that there are massive historical backs behind this, not the least of which is, and it's commonly in, you know, being more aggressively discussed now than ever, the existence of power and force and domination-related institutions like male supremacy, slavery, uh, and, and its legacy that have led to, in our culture, one that is predicated on at least the illusion of sheer domination or physical, mental, hardcore assertion of one's will upon another as the equivalent of power. That being said, the American era has been sustainable for as long as it has because in a way it did an important thing. By moving away from an autocratic political model and into at least in theory, a democratic power and power and governmental model, it set the country up for having a tradition where at least power, force, and the abuse of it were limited by the constitution and diffused um, throughout the population, which I think has set up an interesting um, tension within the country's history. And we're seeing it play out right now. 
the behaviors that one traditionally associates with masculinity or not. Um, and the idea of presenting one as oneself as strong or forceful, particularly at high political levels of office, who is, who isn't, and how they contrast with each other has become not only a matter of intense political and public discussion, but is actually seeped into the discourse around things like our ability to handle disease, large-scale social movements, fashion, you know, everything top to bottom. I personally believe we're at a profound inflection point around these issues, and our culture, I suspect, will strongly change forever for it. And why do you think this is happening now? Because yeah. it just seems like it is all coming to a head. Yeah. What used to work isn't working anymore. What used to make sense isn't making sense anymore. What we used to sort of find a way to tolerate, we are just unwilling to tolerate anymore. Why now? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And one, my little mind can only begin to wrap itself around. But I will sort of ramble a little bit about those little beginnings. I think some of it is that the historical trends that democracy brought, particularly after World War II, when we were fighting against the, one of the most autocratic government styles imaginable, and then the Cold War, when there was, again, another highly autocratic system that was in place that United, the United States was, at least in theory, opposed to, in order for us to be able to resist the propaganda that those other societies were bringing out, or to be able to, as anything other than farce, live up to our ideals, we had to continue to spread out the at least appearance of access to power, authority, and, and, and prosperity across the entire population. Now, I don't know to what extent there ever really has been a belief in our society at the top levels that it should be, or maybe there, will, there was a tolerance of certain groups and individuals gradually having greater and greater access. But in a democratic society, you cannot upfront put out um, a position that no, <laughs> you know, the masses deserve nothing. You have to at least present to them the image of power and that at least has to be superficially backed up. But as our population became more and more educated, as the groups that began to have or clamor for access to power began to grow and grow and grow, attention between what was being said, the ideals, and what was happening became greater and greater and greater. Technology, of course, as you and I know, we're engaged in something right now that is a result of it, has been popular in no small part because it's one of the greatest disruptive democratizers if not the greatest one in history, the only competitor that I can think of might be either TV or the printing press, but even they are out, you know, this is just merely an outgrowth of those things. So we have that. We have people ability, you know, the ability to be vocal. Then we have had in the United States what one might perceive as the apex of some of these pro, um, you know, widening of the social compact forces leading to an African-American president, and as has been discussed ad nauseum in the media, mm -hmm. backlash. Followed up, by the way, after that president with a candidate that was female, who had personality characteristics that I won't say anymore at this moment, except to describe as divisive, polarizing. And you won't find me speaking politically, that's for sure. So yeah, <laughs> just, just not just not going there. Yeah. And so, you know, but these forces play out. And, and so I think that then all of this does come to a head. We have technology and the democratization that, that brings. We have political changes going back and forth. Then we have people cooped up 
in their houses, not really able to go anywhere, frustrated and feeling powerless because of something no one can control. I think that has so much to do with it, that sense and that feeling of powerless, which we can look at as a betrayal. You know, we can really look at it like, you know, this, this virus is betraying us or government is betraying us. We, it's really, it's, we could really take this to just this widespread look. So let's bring it back now. And, you know, I, I know you mentioned that you were adopted and on some level there was a betrayal there. Can you explain what you mean? Yeah. So, you know, I want to preface this by saying that my adoptive parents did one thing very well, and that was teach me as a child to understand adoption in the most positive terms. So they framed it in a way so that I never, as a child, in my youngest ages, felt betrayed. They framed it as a gift. However, eventually, you know, you grow older and your mind forms and you become a little bit more independent in your thinking. It was hard not to feel the circumstances of my adoption, as I found out, were that my biological mother and my biological father were graduate students in England. They had an affair, they had a child, they were of different races, um, and what I was at that age and stage in their life was unacceptable. It just really was. Um, a biracial child raised by two graduate students that, were, that for all I know had no intention of ever being in a long-term relationship. It just wasn't going to happen. Not only that, there were economic consequences to that that I'm sure uh, my mother, my biological mother and father didn't want to endure, and that wasn't their fault. But at the end of the day, and I also want to leaven what I say with the acknowledgement that they chose to have me, or at least my mother chose to have me. So I'm, I will never take that as a betrayal, at least. But at the end of the day, um, she made a decision she was not prepared to live with the consequences. And, or at least the consequences lived out as social norms would have, you know, dictated was not acceptable to her. And so she gave me to some complete strangers. Um, that led to a whole other set of challenges. The people that adopted me were African-American. I'm biracial. I do not look visibly African-American at all. Um, I had family members that made it quite clear that they did not appreciate having relatives, including grandparents, that were um, not of their own blood, let alone were of, not of their own you know, racial descent. Mm. Um, and you know, all of these sorts of things are easy to track back to, and, and the, envir- the environment I was raised in was very challenging for a number of other different reasons. Well, and, and before you even go there, and I, and I do wanna go there, how did you, how did you make, sense and meaning out of that what what did you do with that when you felt that you you weren't accepted at first a challenge i've had through earlier parts of my life is developing a sense of grievance and holding on to that grievance it was weird for many years i worked with populations like the homeless people that needed meals on wheels or I was involved in different charitable organizations, or I would travel to places like India, you would see people that were suffering far more greatly than I could ever imagine suffering. And yet, I really didn't absorb it. I was so caught up in my own psychological default with regards to grievance. And this is the burden that the universe put on me. And why me couldn't I have been someone who was just born into wealth and had a normal, <laughs> had a normal skin color and you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, it wasn't until I began to really decide 
as a conscious matter to embrace radical accountability for my life. And I mean radical. For me, it had to be radical. But I was able to then understand these narratives are within my power to change. And by beginning to change my inner narratives, one by one, I was able to move beyond that. And by the way, that process was the same one relating to masculinity. Me thinking, what are the narratives that I've just absorbed? I have the power to change my narrative around what being a man is. And as a gay man, it was ridiculous in a way that I would absorb any of them at all. Yet I did. All the more reason for me to think all this through for myself, including the narrative around adoption. So you'd have uh, the, this, the grievance experience, and that's how you move through it. And I always want to share with the listeners what that change looks like, because change is, is so possible when we become proactive instead of being reactive. And so I want to know if you can kind of remember when those thoughts would creep up, that you had that go-to response, that go-to anger, that go-to grievance. How did you catch it? How did you change it as it relates to the adoption and then maybe even acceptance around being gay? Yeah. In my case, it was a process that developed around owning it, acknowledging that I had the fear in the first place. Acknowledging that I have fear as a man is for me very, very difficult. It puts me in a place of extreme vulnerability. It shows weakness, which I'm still, there's a part of me that has a challenge accepting. But I've learned to be able to do that, to say, Scott, be strong, be brave, and acknowledge that you're afraid. Then develop the resolve. And then third, commit to practicing over and over, facing that fear in one way or another, even if it's imagining that fear as a record on an old style Victrola that I lift a new lock and change, you know, to a different to a different 12-inch single. And um, and then practice it over and over and over again. For me, a lot of this my success in changing mindset, including fear-based thinking habits has been based purely on practice, understanding that we practice, we just forge through. We can do more than is imaginable. You know, I always say it's repetition and consistency. So do you remember, take us back to how you physically, do you remember how you physically felt? Maybe the the physical, mental, and emotional kind of symptoms letting you know you were in a a dark negative, negative space. And what had you realize, no, you know what? I really am changing. I feel different physically, mentally, and emotionally. Before answering that, I will throw out something that frames my answer. And that is... One of the paradoxes about facing our fears is that the one fear that is the most existential, which is the elimination of who we are as human beings, actually happens when you face it. Mm. At least in me, it happened. I call that the paradox of fear. My old identity has been wiped away. It's been extinguished. I'm someone new. I love that you said that because I always talk about transformation, how you cannot bring the old version of you with you. Yeah. It's, an, it's the shedding of that old identity so that that new identity can be birthed. And it sounds right. like that's exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, the, the elimination, the extinguishment of our identity. The identity is the core of who we are. That, in a way, is the thing we fear the most. And I remember someone telling me, you know, I experienced a fear-based mindset as one that was reactive and rageful. 
rageful because I felt impotent, rageful because I felt, you know, victim of injustice, rageful because I didn't, I couldn't conceive of any more appropriate response. It's interesting. I'll never forget the moment that everything changed. A friend of mine invited me to um, join a martial arts school that he owned. I went, I was horrible, horrible. And one day, there was a kickboxing class I was taking. The instructor said, put your left hand up. I put my right hand up. And he said, no, put so your other hand, Scott. The other left Then he said, right. <laughs> then he said, put, you know, move your left hip forward. I put the right hip, right. He had to correct then my foot. I put the right. And then I totally had this, you know, I read once about Diana Ross getting sick and mad and sick and tired in a concert of people requesting her to say, sing Baby Love. So when someone asked her to do that, she threw down the mic and stomped off the stage. I had a Diana Ross moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's, it, of course I was embarrassed by it. I was full of rage. But as the instructor pointed out, and as I realized it was true, I could not blame anyone for the challenge I was having. The blame it was public. No one, everyone could see I was screwing up every single technique. It was utterly and completely on me. Face it, I had to say to myself, you have to own that, and then you have to just keep coming and trying to get better. And that provided me, the, that was the first time I wasn't able to really rationalize away uh, the things that I, about myself, that were weaknesses or that I was afraid of. I was afraid of failing there. Yeah, and it's like you truly were outgrowing that old version of you. You couldn't fit into that anymore. You know, I'll never forget uh, when I was really having my transformation. Dreams are powerful when we interpret them. And I will never forget, I was actually walking up a mountain. Now, how obvious is this? But to me, it, was, it wasn't at the time. I was walking up a mountain. I get to a certain point in the mountain, and I actually unzip like a Debbie suit. And I let it go. And it just mm. went down the mountain. And it was wow. this, like, I was wearing almost like, you know, those, uh, well, like, the, on the little kids, the, the, the one-piece pajamas, you know, yeah. with the feet and everything. And yeah. it was a suit. And I unzipped it. And it went down the mountain. And I was like, what the heck is that? Yeah. But I get it. That was shedding wow. the old identity. What a First of all, how long did it take you to interpret and understand what that really meant? I've got really, it like about two minutes. It was <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's amazing how those moments can stick with you. Even if in, if in the time you sort of know something has changed. Um, now, it of course took a while for me to broaden that practice out into other spheres of my life. But it was inescapable. And the weird thing was I felt better. I felt better being able to release. You know, anger... That was my internalization of my fears, my way I could allow myself to express it. Had an edginess had become such a part of my identity that I almost couldn't imagine myself without them. I couldn't imagine who I am now. It's weird. And back. and as you were shedding shedding that, do you remember the difference in even how other people related to you when you were that angry? person and then when you realize that that's just not who I am what was the yeah. difference in other people in yourself you know one thing that I remember was that I used to work out at a gay gym and I felt that the atmosphere was hostile there now some of it was because I was not stereotypically good looking that's totally cool so it's not going to happen but some of it looking back on it is I would walk around in a 
body, you know, exuding body language that was intimidating, defensive, and angry. People respond to that in a certain way. When I changed, I would walk around the gym or the dojo that I was working in or places in general, just more full of what I call inner radiance. People respond to that. People found me easier to talk to. People found me, you know, I don't think that people ever found me unenjoyable to talk to or that they didn't laugh, but we would laugh about different things. Also, the nature of the conversations I had with people changed. And so the yeah, people and that you're around change. Well, and it's so relate, interesting. Huh? Oh, yeah. And it's so interesting <laughs> because I, I don't remember who said it, but I love this. And it's, you can tell someone's level of consciousness by what they find entertaining. Mm. Isn't that great? And I wish I remember who said it, but it's so true. What the conversations you had at that level of consciousness where you were, you know, trying to just exude that type of energy became very different when you, you know, when you changed and anybody who's listening to this, watching this, you exude such warmth. Oh, oh, right. you. <laughs> and oh, you. <laughs> there's just, I mean, it's hard to imagine, but I, I do, I see the most extreme changes in people when they shed that skin. I bet you do. And I bet that, it's really inspiring. It's so inspiring. And you're just a, a beautiful example oh, of it. So you. then how did life change once you, once you really, you did, you shed that old skin, you shed that old identity, embrace the new. What changed for you? I say the biggest thing is the horizon of possibilities that I saw for myself expanded unbelievably. I could see much more clearly. You know, I read once about something called a light cone. When you turn on a light from a point, the light goes out in a cone, and that's what you can see. My light cone went from being narrow to being unbelievably expansive. I would never have imagined that I would or could be an entrepreneur. I assumed, oh, entrepreneurs are people that work themselves. They're just doing that because they can't work you know, for other people or, or everyone hates them. You know, I had all of these dismissive reasons for why people would not make the choices I would. Um, I would be much more judgmental, even if just silently, about the decisions and choices and actions other people had. And I thought I knew more about life in the world than of course I did. One of the most powerful changes, one of the most beautiful things has been by having all of that go away, I'm open to so much. Mm. And I've been open to that myself. So my whole life trajectory has changed. And not only that, I'm so aware because of that openness by talking to people, by saying, I don't know anything exactly at how much I don't know. Now that can be overwhelming, but it's beautiful because then you get to explore it. If you don't even know, if you think you know everything, you don't get to explore anything. Now oh, I'm exploring, so being right, meeting people like you that I would never, would you have wanted to hang out with me on this show if I was some angry person? No, and here no. we are laughing and smiling and having a grand old time. It's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really so true. And I remember years ago saying, uh, just because I don't understand something doesn't mean it's not true. So stay curious. Yeah. And it's amazing what, what, gets revealed when you're willing. And I always talk about the word willing, and that's just so huge. But when you're willing to just, to just move forward without the certainty of knowing what's going to show up, but this new version of you truly closes the chapter on that last door, opening up a door that never would have been visible had that not happened. So Scott, what do you want to make sure everyone knows as we wrap up? 
Um, first of all, I want them to know that it is a privilege to be talking to you and a privilege to have them listening. I've got to say that first. Um, secondly, I have actually a book that I've co-authored with a friend of mine um, that will be coming out that will be an inspirational book that relates to a lot of our thinking around toxic masculinity and how we can each change. One of the interesting elements of that book is that this is a heterosexual man and myself and, and what one of the themes of it is how our burgeoning friendship itself has changed what being a man is for both of us. And there's real power in that too. I know we don't have time to discuss it, it's a whole other topic, but that's what will be coming out in the next few months. And um, folks, I have a video series that a little one or two minute, you know, Scott Mason, Scott Speaks is what it's called on LinkedIn or Instagram. And if folks are ever interested in hearing me, go stir crazy over something, I would love to have them listen and, and give me their thoughts. That's wonderful. Any closing thoughts? Anything you want to make sure they understand? Don't be afraid of change. If you feel like you need to change, you need to dive in. You can do it. Tomorrow is going to be magnificent. Oh, I love that. And it's so true, right? We fear you change. You can wait. Our best life is always waiting on the other exactly. side. I think it was Neil Donald Walsh who said it, life begins outside our comfort zone, and it's people like you who go who go there and then live to tell about it, mm -hmm. and it's all good. Scott, thank you so much thank for you. your time, for your attention. I know you shared so much wisdom, and I know our listeners are going to get so much out of this. You're amazing. Wasn't that a fun conversation? I love Scott's term, radical accountability, and how that's exactly what he did in order to exchange his forceful and aggressive ways for a kinder and more open version of him that fits him so much better. Stay in touch with Scott by going to speakerscott.com and we'll have all of his information in the show notes at thepbtinstitute.com forward slash podcast. Here's my biggest takeaway. Taking radical accountability for ourselves and how we're showing up is the first step to determining if it's working for us. If so, great. If not, it's time to face that fear, commit to show up differently, practice, practice, practice until one day we see that we've outgrown that old self and we can lovingly embrace the new. Just like that dream I had of shedding that old Debbie suit, check in and see what version of you you've outgrown. Of course, it's always great to get a sense of where you're at physically, mentally, and emotionally. So take the post-betrayal syndrome quiz to see what may be lingering for you. You can find that at thepbtinstitute.com forward slash quiz. And have you checked out the PBT Institute membership community? Imagine everything you'd ever need to become your physical, mental, emotional best. Community, support, certified coaches and practitioners you could schedule time with, daily classes on all kinds of interesting topics, curated experts teaching advanced strategies in the areas of health, mindset, spirituality, personal development. Imagine the most friendly, welcoming and supportive place to become your best all online. Nothing like this exists and I'm so excited to welcome you. Go to thepbtinstitute.com forward slash join to learn more. Thanks for listening. Can't wait to be with you next time and here's to your breakthrough.